I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, we are in conversation with ESPN college basketball analyst Jay Billis. So about a day and a half after the Ohio State men's basketball team beat Villanova 76-51 to at the Schottenstein Center, and the day after it was announced that Chase Young would be able to return to the football field for the Buckeyes for the upcoming Penn State contest. In our conversation, we talk about both the Buckeyes' win over Villanova and the Chase Young suspension, as well as Chris Holtman's impact on the OSU program, what Jay has seen from the Ohio State freshman in the early going of the 2019-2020 season, his very strong feelings about the NCAA's rules and how they were applied to student-athletes, and much, much more. We also briefly discussed the situation with Memphis freshman James Wiseman. Obviously, this interview was recorded before the NCAA handed down its 12 games in total suspension on Wednesday and ordered the number one recruit in the country to pay $11,500 to charity as a condition of his reinstatement. Okay, with all of that now out of the way, here's my conversation with Jay Billis. I wanted to kind of start with a, a kind of a broader view question about Ohio State basketball. Now that Chris Holtman has uh, started his third season in Columbus, I just kind of wondered what your general impressions about what he has been able to do with Ohio State's program, kind of take it from the Thad Mata era and mold it in his own image and likeness, so to speak, and how, how that's gone so far over the first couple seasons. Well, he's done a great job. I mean, Chris is a, an outstanding coach, and the, the thing that's best about him is – uh, a lot like that, uh, uh, exactly like that. Like they're both high-level integrity guys, and so when they say something, uh, it's uh, they mean it, and uh, and when they say they're going to do something, they do it and they do it right. So he's uh, I've been a big fan of his, uh, you know, ever since I met him when he was assistant at Butler, and uh, I think he's the real deal. So I, I think he's done a really good job, and uh, and they're. You know they're poised to have a a really good season in a year where if you stay healthy and uh, you know you're playing well at the end, you got a real chance. Yeah, I don't know how much uh, of a chance you got to see of the game against Villanova that they had uh, a few nights ago, but Ohio State came out incredibly hot, which is not something they had done in the first two games of this season, and it kind of felt like the really highly ranked recruiting class, the freshmen kind of led that in a lot of ways. First off, did you get to watch much of it? Have you got to catch up on it since that night? I watched it, yeah. So what did you see out of that crop of freshmen with EJ Liddell and DJ Carton and Alonzo Gaffney and how they kind of integrated with some of the more veteran players, even though Ohio State's only senior, Andre Wesson, was out with an injury? They play hard, and that's that's more than half the battle. 
And so you know, when you get when you get freshmen, sometimes they're out there thinking and trying to figure it out. And the best way to get through that is to just play your ass off, and and they do that. Uh, now, they, Ohio State played really well, and and I, I can't imagine a scenario where you know they wouldn't have won that game uh, against Villanova because of how well they how well Ohio State played. You don't want to take it too far because Villanova missed every open shot yeah, they had. Very true. I mean, they they were so it was a combination of it was a combination of Ohio State played really well and Villanova was flat out awful. Um, so as between the two teams, I think Ohio State is better. Uh, but they're not, you know, they're not 25 points better. Um, so, uh, you know, you have to, you have to be sort of realistic about the result too. But, um, but I think the, the, the really good thing about, uh, you know, Ohio State's play is, uh, you know, they've defended very well and, uh, and they've, I think they've done a, a pretty good job for the most part, um, you know, taking care of the ball. And uh, so they're not, they're not doing the things that cause you to lose, um, you know, they're, they're, I think they have good, really good balance and, uh, and some very good players. They don't have anybody, you know, that they can throw the ball to and say, go get me 30. Um, but they've got a, you know, they've got, I, I'd say five, six guys that get you 20 in any given game. And that's uh that's a nice thing to have. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned the fact that Villanova played awfully. I mean, I, I don't think even Jay Wright would dispute that fact, but it, it kind of goes with a pattern that we've seen a lot in this early season with, Kentucky losing and Michigan State losing. But we've seen a lot of these higher profile games early in the season, whether that's thanks to television or kind of just the way the, the schedules have changed. What are your thoughts about what it takes to kind of get through those early high marquee games early in the season and what those results can actually tell us about the team that will probably look markedly different in four or five months when tournament time comes around? I don't think anything's any different this year than any other year. Um, you know, it, it, I, I don't think we have a truly uh, great team that I've seen yet, but we have, uh, we have, a, 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 and by that, I mean, you know, overwhelming talent. Um, we've got some very good teams out there and there, there are a number of teams that are capable of, of, uh, you know, winning this thing. Uh, but, but there's nobody like, you know, like Kentucky in 2015 or, uh, you know, Villanova and, and 2016 or teams like that yet. Now, maybe one of them emerges, but I don't think they will. Um, it, it's one of those years where where we've got a lot of really good teams, um, but nobody, I don't think, I think it's going to be a rotating number one and a rotating top five all year long. So, you know, if anybody thinks they got it knocked, they probably don't. Um, I, I happen to think that that we've always had, upsets and and we're not seeing it in any greater measure now uh than we have in past years but uh uh you know when there is a when when a top team does stub its toe you know like uh Kentucky losing to Evansville uh you know we tend to to take that as a uh, uh you know sign of the apocalypse or something and it's not and similarly, like when Michigan State lost to Kentucky uh they were like, oh my god you know one uh the, the number one is upset. Well, we didn't know Michigan State's number one. We just we just declared them number one. Um, so there's a bunch of teams that are going to be number one this year. And uh, so it, it's not – I don't think that one versus two – we, we probably didn't even have one versus two in that game. They were just declared yeah. that before the season. And with games like that – and Ohio State has a bunch not only with Villanova, but they play North Carolina and they play Kentucky – 
this isn't like football where one loss early in the season can really hinder your chances of winning a national championship. But are you in favor of having these kind of really high profile games this early in the season in the first week, in the first two weeks? Would you rather see those peppered in maybe when they get into December uh, or even, you know, even closer into maybe even January mixed in once conference season starts? But they do play those. I mean, they play those games all the time. I mean, I, you know, I, so, you know, to me, um, basketball should do what football does and, and play the highest level games you can. Like it, 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 it it's pretty simple. If fans don't want to see it, uh, and, and, uh, television doesn't want to air it, then the players don't want to play in it. And so like, to me, like, you know, I played and I don't remember, you know, I'm 55 and none of my teammates talk about the buy games we had, nobody cares. And so why, why coaches want to play those games? I'll never know. And most coaches don't. They would prefer to play better opponents, but they have to play home games. And that's right. that's kind of the problem is how do you get quality home games? And the only way to do that is to um, to have the, the power five conferences and some others um, sort of agree on scheduling. Uh, but then the, the smaller conferences in a in a in a division one that's just way too big um, are going to scream about opportunity. And um, um, when they can't, they hardly ever win. And, and, you know, so it it just doesn't, the whole thing from a business perspective doesn't make any sense. You know, the, 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 these teams should be playing better schedules and better games. And, uh, and they don't for a lot of different reasons. And with, especially you have more conference games now. So that necessitates um, uh, some changes in your scheduling and uh and you know you have to have home games and getting quality home games is not as easy as it used to be yeah we see a lot of neutral site games between power five teams uh, with all of these different kinds of special tournaments and events and all that stuff which is great for tv like you said but not always great for the athletic departments and their bottom lines so uh, circling back to ohio state um, you mentioned that well it actually is good for their bottom lines because tv doesn't make true. money without paying the schools yeah. So the schools are always like, don't kid yourself. The schools are always making money. Um, you know, <laughs> we'll they, they don't too. play without making money. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to some of those questions uh, in a minute. But a few minutes ago, you'd mentioned the fact that Ohio State doesn't have a dominant player who can go out and get you 30 every time out. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. But they do have a player that is kind of the centerpiece uh, of their team. And that's Caleb Wesson. He explored the NBA draft after last season and rightly decided against entering and come and came back for his junior season. There's been a lot talked about how he's lost a ton of weight and really worked on his shooting ability to kind of mold himself into the type of big man that the NBA has wanted in recent years. In these first three games of the season, obviously it's a small sample size, but how do you, how marked do you think that those improvements have been for him? And what do you think that is the ceiling for him, not only this season, but maybe as an eventual NBA prospect as well? Well, he looks great. He's quicker. Um, uh, he hasn't shot the ball well yet, uh, and from, whether from the line or from the field, but he will. And uh, and I think he's been pretty efficient and has been very active defensively. So he, he I think he looks good. Um, you know, the, the 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 pro game is sort of going away from uh, from the post, so it's more of a spread game. Uh, so, uh, I, I can't tell you that he's got a tremendously high value in the NBA, but he can play in the NBA and I think he probably will. Um, but it's, uh, it, the NBA is a different game now than it was, you know, 15 years ago. And, uh, but, but it was a different game 15 years ago than it was 15 years before that. 
So, um, you know, everything evolves and, uh, same thing's true in football and all that stuff. You know, you have, you have players that played in the NFL 20 years ago that couldn't scratch the NFL now and similar to it's, it's the same thing in basketball. Yeah. Uh, Rook, I want to talk about his, his brother, Andre, and he was out uh, for the last game as a fractured eye socket or whatever from friendly, a friendly fire elbow. Um, and while he's important to Ohio State team, he's not the biggest name, but he seems to be a guy that does all of the little things that the the coaches ask for. He is a, a glue guy and not necessarily speaking specifically about Andre, although you're welcome to, to do that. But it seems that those types of players are invaluable in college basketball and probably the NBA as well. But what is it about the intangibles that a player like Andre Wesson can bring to a team that really helps get a young team like Ohio state over the hump and get some of those younger players who don't have a ton of experience kind of acclimated to the college game. It's just like anything else. I mean, you have to have players play certain roles for in order for a, a team to be uh, its best and, and to be a high level uh, operating unit. And, you know, just like if you're flying, you know, you, you, you can sit and talk about how great the pilot is, but if the mechanic doesn't do his or her job correctly, uh, that plane's not flying. So uh, you have to have everybody be a star in their role. And I think Ohio State's a, an example of that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Well, I want to turn away from from basketball a little bit because over the last few weeks, uh, Ohio State and its fans have been dealing with the fallout of this Chase Young family friend, lone girlfriend, Rose Bowl fiasco. Um, and I know he's not a basketball player, but you are very passionate about how the NCAA handles these situations. Um, Chase will be back for the Penn State game, um, which is all that really Ohio State fans really cared about. But there's a lot more to this. And I just kind of wondered what your broad strokes on this situation was and how the NCAA handled it. If you had any thoughts. Well, I mean, there's a lot of different, a lot of different aspects to it. One is the policy and, and the NCAA has bad policy with regard to what players can earn or accept. Um, And so while I won't argue that what, uh, what Chase Young accepted was violative of the NCAA rules, but that doesn't make the rules right. The rules are wrong. They need to be changed. Uh, the next part is the, the, the process. So, uh, you know, when the rules, when, when there's been a rules violation, if it's a, uh, if it's a, uh, an institutional matter, it's a committee on infractions matter and the committee or the, the institution gets due process. 
if it's a an eligibility question, then it, it, with regard to a player, then it goes into the reinstatement side of the NCAA, which is a smaller committee of, of five or so people, and the athlete has no rights. It is the institution that declares the player immediately ineligible, immediately guilty until proven innocent, and the player has to give up uh, his or her only asset, which is their ability to play. And they have no say in the process at all. And that's intentional because the NCAA wants to be seen as a, uh, a voluntary membership organization. And so the NCAA will say, well, we didn't suspend anyone. The school did it. The member did it. So the NCAA deals with the member and not, not the athlete. And uh, so it's inherently unfair to the player. But that's the Rube Goldberg sh- uh, structure they set up. And, uh, and so, um, you know, that's why you don't see coaches sitting out, um, when they're, when they're questions or why you don't see, you don't see teams not playing while there's a a question, um, you know, but you see players sitting out because, uh, because they're not members of the NCAA. And so that needs to change. The players need to have rights, but it never will. Uh, the NCAA doesn't want to change it, uh, because they, they feel like, uh, you know, the members feel like, well, uh, you know, the only hammer we have over the players is, is this. And, uh, and they actually like the amount of complaining that they hear. They, they think that's a good thing, that uh, that, that means that, that their, their rules have teeth in their twisted logic. Um, so it's not going to change uh, until the players do something about it. The players are going to have to boycott or sit out or do something because it's never going to change as long as, as long as the, you know, the NCAA – and the and the members hold all the power, and the players can't exert any at all. One of the things that players have tried to do in the past was they attempted to unionize at Northwestern a few years ago, and then that was eventually shot down. From the legal side of things, do you think that there's any potential process that they could somehow retroactively, or you know, kind of go back with that case, or come up with some other way to provide some sort of unionization for college athletes, whether it's in one sport or across all sports? I'm sure there, there are things that they could continue to try, but they're, they're uh, difficult endeavors to undertake because most, you know, the players are transient. They're only there for a certain amount of time. And most players are looking at this and, and it's not, you know, it's not difficult to understand, but they're looking at this as, you know, why should I undertake all this pain when I'm not going to benefit from it? I just want to go through and then get out of here and move on. Um, so it's, it's a difficult process uh, to get people to, um, to do something for the, the betterment of the whole. But at some point, you know, the players are, have, have become more educated and more savvy on things. And at some point, we'll see it. We'll see, a, we'll see some sort of boycott, some sort of uh, uh, protest um, so it'll happen. It's just a question of when and where. Uh, but you know, right now that's the only thing they have. And, but if you look back in, in, you know, any sort of progress for athlete rights, um, they've basically had to, had to threaten, uh, to withhold services. That, that's really the only thing that gets the attention because, you know, no players, no games and, and the NCAA and all the member institutions and the conferences, they've sold these games. And so if they want their money, the players have to play. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, there's so many things the players could do, uh, on that front, but, uh, but it's difficult to organize and the players have to organize it basically themselves. Yeah. 
what one of the things you you mentioned the fact that you don't see the NCAA changing on some of these rules and due process issues that we saw in the Chase Young case. But recently, the NCAA did say that they were at least indicated that they would be willing to kind of make some changes on the name, image, and likeness front. I think that there's a lot of skepticism as to what those changes will actually look like and if and when they will actually happen. But do you think that there is an appetite among the member institutions to make those changes, if for no other reason, that they are being forced to by external forces? I don't think there's any appetite to do it at all. I think they're just reacting as they normally do. Um, uh, you know, the NCAA is a, a reactive organization. They're not proactive in any way, shape, or form. So they, um, what they do is 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 react to uh, being pushed. And that's all they're doing with the name, image, and likeness thing. The truth is they're not going to do anything. Uh, and they've indicated that uh, very clearly by saying, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna, to um, promulgate rules that fit within the collegiate model, which means we're not doing this. And it, it, they're essentially saying uh, we're going to allow the players to go through a car wash uh, as long as it is proven that they won't get wet. And that's that's absurd. They're not going to do this. And so it's going to continue down this road where they're going to be pushed to do it. And uh, and it'll go, you know, we'll go into other areas as a result. But, you know, you, you look you look at how everything's changed over the years. The amount of money is one thing. The commercialization of the game is the other is another thing. And then, I mean, heck, there are things they've they've said they've never they'd never do. They're doing. They're selling alcohol at basketball games and football games now. Um, the signage they've got is unbelievable. The uh, they're selling the players at every every turn. Um, you know, they've got uh, uh, conference networks. You know, you name it, uh, they've done it. And the one thing they haven't they haven't changed is what the players are allowed, and um, um, everything the players are allowed benefits the institution more so than the player. Well, a couple more real quick questions for you on on the same day that all this news about Chase Young broke, all of Ohio State was focused on that, but there was another really big NCAA eligibility resolution or, or announcement made that day, and that is that the number one recruit in this past recruiting class in college basketball, James Wiseman was declared ineligible at Memphis. Can you guys kind of break down how this can happen? I mean, isn't this something that should have been figured out before the season started? I'm just kind of confused as to why it takes this long for the NCAA to make a resolution when they, like you, knew all of the information beforehand. Well, I don't know that they did know all the information beforehand. So it's similar to the Chase Young thing. Um, They didn't, who knows whether they had that information or Ohio State did. Um, they might have known about it, uh, uh, you know, a little bit earlier than it was reported when it became a public matter. But that, it's part of the process. Memphis did not want to declare the player ineligible in seek reinstatement. Um, they felt like it didn't fit within the, uh, you know, the the rules as a, a booster and all that stuff. But it did, and so uh, Memphis did not go to court. The player did. Um, Memphis was aligned with the players' interests, but uh, what was extraordinary wasn't wasn't that. The extraordinary thing was Memphis played the player anyway. So uh, you know, Ohio State held Chase Young out. Memphis chose not to hold James Wiseman out, and they were taking significant risk in doing that of, of knowingly playing an ineligible player. So in order to move forward on this, they had to you know the suit had to be dropped. The NCAA would not deal with the issue until the lawsuit was dropped. They dropped it, and then they went through the normal process. So now they're going through the normal process. 
So it's up to the NCAA now to determine the ball's back in their court, almost literally, where they say uh, they they get to determine. Well, wait a minute. What do we do now? Do we do we lessen the penalties simply because uh, we want to settle this and get it out of the newspapers, or do we handle this as we're supposed to and just handle it on the facts? Because I can't think of a reason why it would be less than nine games. What what sort of mitigating factors there would be in this case? Otherwise, they're just they're just inviting another uh, you know the next prospect to sue and uh and to to get a reduction in the in the penalty so um i it, we'll see what happens but this is the same as the chase young thing the rule sucks and they need to change the rule um the process sucks because the player has no recourse other than to go into court and get a temporary restraining order which puts the school in a bad spot and the ncaa in a bad spot um but uh, you know the ncaa seems okay with that um uh, but but it's you know the, I think it's horribly unfair uh, to the player and uh, and I think it's just bad policy to begin with. But but the the actual process itself, um, everybody knows how it works. The public doesn't, and you know media members might not. But but it's pretty simple how it works, and uh, so everybody kind of knows that. Uh, so you know I think Memphis mishandled this. Um, but uh, but they did it for they did it for a good reason, uh, at least in their minds, that that they were able to send a clear message to recruits that will stand up for you, and also they sent a, a clear message to their fans that uh, that we're not you know we're gonna we're gonna fight, and uh, and that's become the norm now in college sports where um, because the NCAA has mishandled so many cases and they have uh, over punished in my judgment um, those that have cooperated. Uh, I think more and more administrators and institutions are looking at this going, wait a minute, if you're going to get hit that hard by cooperating, why not fight? Uh, and so they're, they're, I think you see more and more starting to fight. Yeah. Well, I'll wrap it up on this one last question. Like you said, there are so many teams in Division One college basketball. If there is a team that maybe might not be at the top of everyone's cognizance now early in this season, whether that's a team that you think could contend for a Sweet 16 Final Four or just a team that you think is a really enjoyable team to watch. Do you have one that jumps to mind there? Arizona, I would say. Arizona's really good. Yeah, I would say Arizona. Maryland, uh, I think, is a really good team. Uh, they've not. They've only had a couple games, but I think they're going to be they're going to be really good. But yeah, I would say I would say Arizona. Um, uh, is is one that will surprise people as to how good they are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land in conversation. Thank you, of course, to Jay Billis and our own Kelsey Trainer. If you are finding this episode on our website, don't forget to go to your favorite podcasting app and subscribe so that you get all of the Land Grant Holy Land audio goodness. Also, don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33, and you can find me at BWW Matt. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon, and go Bucks.